verses of that chapter. And I want to let you know, in the late 19th century in America, there was a wave of enthusiasm and prophecies predicting the actual date of the second coming of Christ. And they began to spread news of these new dates of the second coming with such enthusiasm that they had not seen before. Now, one account notes that the fields were left unharvested, shops were closed, people quit their jobs, paid their debts, and freely gave away their possession with no thought of repayment. Huge press runs, publications, like the Midnight Cry warned that the public, that the time is short, prepare to meet thy God, the Lord is coming. What's interesting is some began to peddle and sell white ascension robes. To those who are faithful. In fact, some people waited for this event and dug, freshly dug graves to wait in. Now, I'm not sure how long people waited in their ascension robes or how long they hung out in their freshly dug graves. But as we all know, the second coming of Jesus did not occur in the 19th century. We hear stories about people and seasons and eras where people thought Jesus was coming back that particular day. And people today still have questions and thoughts and opinions about the return of Christ. Jesus, speaking about his second coming, said in the chapter we're going to be looking at, but of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And although we don't know the specific time or day of Jesus' return, Jesus does give instructions on how we should be thinking, in fact, how we should live in the hope of his return. And that's what we'll look at this morning. The title of the message is Things to Come. It's the second part of what we looked at last week, but this one focuses on the return of Christ. But before we go there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for... What we've already experienced in song, through people who can write lyrics, through the gifts and talents you've given Seth and the praise team, so that we can rehearse truth. And God, now we come to the part of the service where we open your word and we pray that you find us attentive, receptive, open and ready to hear from you. We pray that by your spirit that you would teach us in all wisdom and all truth, not just information, but for transformation, that we live out what you show us today, that we respond with obedience to the things that you present to us. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you, behind you, or beside you, that they would hear and respond to the Lord this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we saw that Jesus had left the temple, in fact left the temple for the last time, and headed across over to the Mount of Olives, where he was with his disciples, particularly four of them, on the Mount of Olives, where they had a private conversation. And in a conversation, 
they begin talking about the end times. And Jesus, in his farewell teaching, begins to tell the disciples and us what to look for, what to expect, and how to live. And I want to look at this passage, this end times passage, with three emphases. And the first one this morning is, Then they will see. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 24 through 27. It says, But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Verses 24 through 27 describe the end of the tribulation and the coming of Christ to the earth to defeat his enemies and establish his kingdom. Now, notice in verse 26, and there's a couple other places we'll see this. In verse 26, it has this word, then. Then. How do you use the word then? Think about the last time you said the word then. What was the reference? How is it used? How do you use it? The word then is used to indicate something before it has taken place or it will take place. We, word, we use the word then in progression like this. I'm going to go to church. Then I'm going to go to lunch. Then I'm going to go to the beach. And then I'm going to get ice cream. That sounds like a great Sunday, right? For some more than others. <laughs> we also use the word then as a cause and effect. If you do this, then this will happen. Parents, we have said that to our kids. If you do this, then this will happen. And kids, we've heard our parents say this. Verses 26 and 27 both begin with this word, then. So we have to look before it and we look after it to see what's going to happen. What comes before the then and what comes after the then? Now, if you look at verses 24 through 27, these verses seem to point at Christ's second coming, the judgment of the world. The disciples, in their question, were getting confused about two things happening at one time. The destruction of Jerusalem and Jesus' coming. There was no then in there. It was, it was the exact same time. And we get a better understanding of their question in Matthew 24, 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? They were asking about the end, Jesus' return. When will that be? And Jesus' response is this. Some things are going to take place and then I will return. And here's what Jesus says. In verses 24 and 25, you'll notice some seemingly odd phrases. He says, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from its heavens, and the, heavens, uh, the powers in the heavens will be shaken. This speaks of natural disasters, and it speaks of events described in Revelation chapter 6 and other places. The wording is consistent with Isaiah chapter 34, Joel chapter 2, and Zechariah Chapter 8, William Barclay, a commentator on this passage, says this, When we read the pictorial words of Jesus 
about the second coming, we must remember that he's giving us neither a map of eternity nor a timetable to the future, but that he is simply using the language and the pictures that many Jews knew and used for centuries before him. In other words, he's using words that the Jewish people, his listeners, would have recognized. Now, the first two events have to do with light. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give off any illumination. The second two events have to do with the heavens. Stars will be falling from the heavens and the powers in heavens will be shaken. Now, what is Jesus talking about? Remember, Jesus is talking about these things must happen, then I will return. Now, if we take a closer look at all these four events that he describes in 24 and 25, all these events are clearly out of the ordinary. In fact, scholars call these events uh, cosmic cataclysms or catastrophes. But it's important to know that Jesus doesn't create his own imagery in this. He is consistent with Scripture. They're almost entirely quotations from Old Testament. So Jesus grounded this entire event in prophetic words of the Old Testament. And then he strengthens his claims by uniting all of Scripture in this return. Now, in Mark's day, and even in parts of our world today, the stars and the sun and the moon were thought to have powers. Powers that were related to the heavens and eventually powers that related to God. And so Jesus says all these perceived powers are going to be shaken and stopped. Then I'll return. He's making it clear that God, his Father, the Creator, is the one in control. Now, Jesus says at the end times, if you'll notice, that it will be dark. Sun won't shine. The moon won't illuminate. Mark will make a reference to another time that it's dark when Jesus is on the cross. We'll look at it in a few weeks. Now, I want to make a connection about this darkness mentioned here. How many of you or how many of your kids have or are scared of the dark? Have you ever thought about why? Have you ever thought about why ghost stories are best in the dark when it's dark? Like they just don't have the same feel if it's in the middle of the day. Why is that? Because darkness promotes fear. And darkness promotes worry. And darkness promotes what we don't know. Darkness has also been described to amplify grief and amplify anxiety. And another thing about darkness is that darkness exposes our own vulnerability. We realize in the dark, we're kind of exposed and vulnerable. And darkness throughout Scripture represents or has been referred to as a, symbolic of, a symbol of victory for evil or defeat of good. And in our day-to-day, we have every 24 hours a chance to experience our vulnerability again. St. John of the Cross wrote a book, and he coined the phrase, Dark Night of the Soul. And it was this word picture that describes what can go on in our soul when we have anxiety and fear and unknowns. 
And to just say a hard day of the soul or a gray morning of the soul just doesn't fit. It's a dark night of the soul. It was darkness that was used to describe the time when Jesus was on the cross. The thought to be a sign that Christ had been defeated, that death had won, and that the worry and doubt and fear in that moment had an image, and it was darkness. Yet you and I know that there is darkness first, and then the light, the victory. Tish Warren in her book says this in Prayer in the Night. She says this, It is in the large part due to the presence of light that we can walk around without fear. Uh, sorry. It is in large part due to the presence of light that we can walk around without fear at night. So Jesus is saying what seems to be dark and dead is really a sign that victory and light is coming. Darkness, then, is not to be seen as dread or horror, but as confidence and hope that the light is coming. The darkness and chaos of this world that we live in now will come to an end and Jesus will return. In fact, Jesus signals that the end is near during that time. Verse 26, we see it again, the word then. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Jesus' return is going to be unmistakable. Pause and think about this just for a second. Jesus' return. It will be the greatest, most magnificent, fantastic event that has ever, ever occurred. Nothing can compare to it. Nothing can come close to it in the past or in the future. And he says to his disciples and to us, every eye is going to see it. No one will be able to say, I didn't see or I couldn't see it. Jesus says, don't be mistaken and don't be fooled. Every eye. When people say, I saw Jesus here and I saw Jesus there. It's like I said last week, I saw Jesus. He came back in Ridgeland. Don't believe him. Everyone will see. And Mark says he will come with great power and glory. The first time Jesus came in vulnerability and as a baby. And the second time he comes, he's going to come with great power and glory. Now get this scene with the disciples. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is telling them what is to come. Knowing that his death and the crucifixion is just a few days away. Jesus is saying these, these words. He's giving testimony to the fact that nobody else is going to be able to do what I can do. In verse 27, we see that when Jesus comes, he will gather his elect. He's going to gather his followers. It's another representation at the end of the world when these angel reapers will be sent forth to all corners of the earth and gather up. It's what Deuteronomy 30, verse 3 says, Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and who I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Jesus, get this picture, comes, this magnificent event, and he draws all the believers from the farthest corners of the earth 
from all the people that we support in missions, from Myanmar to Kenya to South Sudan to, to Peru, to the Middle East and Europe, people from Hilton Head and Bluffton, Ohio, all of us that are believers when Jesus returns, he calls in those of his followers. And in that moment, there will be no more darkness, no more doubt or worry or fear because everything will be light because he is the light. Next we see this, recognizing that he is here, verses 28 to 32. 28 says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth, puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you know too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. First two words in verse 28 say this, now learn. This now learn is a posture of taking in truth. It's this idea of being teachable. In other words, Jesus wants us to look forward, and he's teaching us to look forward to the right things, the right person at the right time. He says, learn from the parable of the fig tree. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, in chapter 11 of Mark, we looked at this fig tree. When Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he has this interaction with the fig tree. And then when he leaves Jerusalem, he has another interaction, conversation about the fig tree. And in that, he's saying, learn from the fig tree. This word parable in verse 28 from the Greek is not just a story, it's a lesson to be learned. And so he's telling the disciples and us, learn this lesson. Be teachable. Have a posture to take in truth. Now what's interesting is the almond tree blossoms early in Palestine. And what's also interesting is that the olive tree and the oak trees and the evergreens, they never shed their leaves in winter. Why is that significant? Well, this means that the trees cannot show that the seasons are coming. But Jesus says, learn from the fig tree. The fig tree loses its leaves in the winter in the late spring and then begins to bud and has tender shoots, letting us know that summer is coming. The buds don't say that summer's here. It says the summer is coming. And he says, learn from the fig tree. There are things happening where summer is coming, meaning my return will happen. Regardless of human effort, God will bring the end times. The fig tree signals that the nearness of Jesus is here. Verse 29, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. When you see what things happening? Verses 5 through 13 and what he's describing. Verse 30 says this, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, I just, I just have to picture the disciples looking at Jesus going, hang on. You're telling me all these things are going to happen, and then you're going to come back, and now you're telling me that they're going to happen in my timeline, in my generation. You've got to help me understand this. 
How can Jesus be talking about the end times and at the same time the things that will be taking place during that generation? Well, most scholars agree that what he's talking about is the destruction of Jerusalem, which happens in 70 A.D. So Jesus is talking around 33 A.D., and he says, within your lifetime, you're going to see the destruction of Jerusalem. And it comes about and happens in 70 A.D. And since then, even then, until now, we have seen signs and signs and signs of Jesus' return and the promise of him coming back. Now, this passage this past week, verse 31, has been probably the most practical and promising one for me. When he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, think about this amazing claim of Christ. Nobody else can make it. Nobody ever has made it. That whatever I have said will remain forever. Whatever I have said remains forever. Everything else will be destroyed, but I will remain. Now, this gives a couple practical truths to me. The first is this. Jesus is the only thing worth looking for and living for. Because everything else will pass away. So hold on to Jesus. The other thing is Jesus was before all things, in all things, and will be forever all things. Remember in John when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and that Word was with God. He was in the very beginning, and now he's saying, I'm going to be at the very end. I am the Alpha and the Omega. All things are held together by me. Jesus says, I am the consistent and faithful one. And then he says this, verse 32, the pivotal verse for a number of reasons. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now this verse has been a stumbling block for a lot of people, particularly conservatives and fundamental Christians who say, well, how could Jesus not know something? Jesus has said a number of times in John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. So if Jesus and the Father are one, how can he not know this? And it's a stumbling block. It's a paradox. Yes, Jesus and the Father are one, so how do we handle this passage? Remember, Jesus gave up. He gave up his divinity to become human, but never becoming not God and becoming fully God, fully man. It's a mystery, but John, Jesus says it himself in John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus answered and saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself. Meaning that he is so in relationship to hearing of his Father. Philippians 2, 7 says, But he emptied himself. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of bondservant, even being made in the likeness of men. So you have to ask yourself, what did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of the foreknowledge, of some foreknowledge, particularly in light of when he will return. So Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back. So think about this. Jesus, like us, is dependent on God every day, no matter what's going on around him, to hear and trust the will of God. And so there's not only a complete trust in the Father's timing, there's also a great obedience to his Father's will, which is a great example for us. 
And I want to look at the last four verses of this chapter together where Jesus gives some pretty strict instructions. Verse 33, he says, Take heed, or notice, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning each one a task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on alert. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether it's in the evening or midnight or the rooster crows or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Have you ever noticed that temptations come in all kinds of shapes and sizes? Thank you, John. Have you ever thought about what tempts you? What tempts you? Usually when we think about temptations, they are bad things, maybe tangible things. We've all been tempted to have like a bad attitude, a bad thought, use a bad word, or even do something bad with our actions. Have any of you ever been tempted to be lazy, not to care, just kind of go, meh? Anybody ever done that? Meh? There's actually a text for that. It's M-E-H. Meh. You ever been tempted to not take important things seriously? You ever been lazy at work? You ever been lazy as a husband? Wives are going, no. Your husband. You ever been lazy as a wife? Parents, you ever been lazy as a parent? Kids, you ever been lazy as a kid? Have you ever been lazy as a believer? Jesus, in his final words in this Olivet Discourse, while he's sitting on the Mount of Olives with his four disciples, says, don't be lazy. Be alert. Take heed. Notice. Be ready. In fact, this word, take heed, take notice, has a picture of stand at attention. Don't be lazy about what? About what I've said about the things to come. And don't fall asleep. Keep on the alert. And here's the progression that usually happens in my life. I can get lazy. And then it kind of leads to doubt. Is it really worth it? And then the doubt kind of leads into complacency. Then the complacency kind of leads into neglect. And then neglect kind of leads into compromise. And then I kind of want to control everything so I am happy. Jesus warns his disciples, do not grow complacent. Be alert. What does being alert look like for you? I thought about the analogy of driving a car for me. When you drive a car, you become aware of a lot of things. Most of the time, you know where you're going. Most. Most of the time, you have Siri or maps or ways or something to tell you how to get there. You also become aware of all kinds of obstacles, stuff in the road, 
warnings, stoplights, potholes, other cars, people from out of town that try to drive on Hilton Head, you become aware that they don't know how to navigate a traffic circle. You, you, you become aware of things, all these things on the outside, certain distractions. And you also become aware of what's happening on the inside of the car. You got kids in the back, you got the air conditioner going, you got the radio going, you got this going, and you're listening for the car. Is it, is it running right? Is it something going on? You're, you're aware of a bunch of things. And while you're aware of everything on the outside and on the inside, you can still enjoy the ride. And I think that's what Jesus might be saying here. Be alert. Be aware of what is going on the outside and what's going on the inside of you. But enjoy the ride with me. Why are we to stay spiritually alert? To know the mind and priorities of Christ and to enjoy the ride with him. Because we don't know when he's coming back. Have you ever thought about this when it comes to the end times in a passage like this? Why, why didn't Jesus just tell us? Why didn't he say, Matthew, next Tuesday, 2 o'clock, Eastern Standard Time, I'm coming. Why didn't he do that? What if you knew? What if you knew this morning the specific time of Jesus' return? Would it change the way you live now? If so, why? If not, why not? One of the greatest stories about this is of John Wesley. The story goes that John Wesley's working in his garden one day, and one of his neighbors comes and tries to attempt to startle and, and kind of jolt Wesley by asking this, What would you be doing now, John, if you knew for certain Jesus would return today? And Wesley jolted back to the neighbor I would go on and do what I'm doing right now. Can that be said of you? Is there a confidence in your walk with Jesus right now that you wouldn't change a thing if you knew for certain when Jesus was coming back? I would go on doing what I'm doing right now. And I think Jesus' point is this. May we live in such a way that Christ could return at any time and we would be comfortable continuing his task today at hand. But only you and him can answer that question. Jesus gives this parable to close out the chapter and he says, I'm giving you responsibilities. Even the doorkeeper. I'm giving you responsibilities. To stay alert. Everybody. Stay alert. All of his servants have things to do. To steward. To do in my absence and be ready to receive. And don't let me come back and verse 36 find you sleeping. That he doesn't find us sleeping in the security of ourselves. That he doesn't find us sleeping, indulging ourselves in ease and laziness and only being a consumer of life. That he doesn't find us sleeping and mindless of our spiritual work and duty. We must be alert. Diligent. About doing our father's business and not sleeping. I meet with a group of guys on Friday morning. And we drink coffee and we're going through a book right now. We're talking about our morning routine, how we wake up, 
Do we wake up with an attitude? Do we wake up like with our feet ready to hit the floor? Is there like a slow process? What's our routine like? And we talked about when we wake up, do you hit the snooze button? Anybody ever hit the snooze button when they wake up in the morning? You're not ready to raise your hand on that question? Yeah. Have you ever thought about what the snooze button does? So I was thinking about it this week. I thought, what does a snooze button really do? And here, I know, maybe it's just me. Maybe I was just thinking this question. Here's what I concluded. The snooze button is a button of delaying reality and holding on to the indulgence of sleep just a little longer. Is that a good description? And it seems to me that the church can be tempted to hit the snooze button. To put off the reality of Jesus coming just a little longer so I can indulge in this sleep just a little longer. And Jesus is saying, wake up, be alert, pay attention. It's time to wake up and get out of bed. Five times in three different words, Jesus warns the disciples to watch and to be alert. Francis Schaeffer coined this famous quote that comes to mind here. How then shall I live? Knowing all I know, the truth that I've embraced, the reality of Jesus coming back, the question really is, how am I supposed to live in light of that? Knowledge of the signs and ignorance of the date is no excuse for laziness or disobedience. We must live so that it does not matter when he comes because all of life becomes a preparation to meet our King Jesus. And so the fundamental question we ask this morning is, are you ready for Jesus' return? few questions I want to leave you for this week with, leave with you for you to think about this week is first is this how will you today seek to be alert for the return of Christ to convince us that Jesus and the works of the spirit is a true thing how will we stay alert that all other things are temporal and pass away but to hold on to Jesus Second question is this, do you live your life in a state of readiness as if at any moment Christ were to return? That could mean today, in a few hundred years, a few weeks. The question is, are you ready? Does anything need to change? Any priorities? Any relationships? Any focuses? How do you view the return of Christ? Does, does the return of Christ bring such great excitement and joy and hope and wonder? Knowing that everything is going to be set right, that, that there's no more darkness, no more doubt, no more fear or worry, no more anxiety or grief. Or is it a view of uncertainty and fear and doubt? 
Jesus is coming in great power and glory, great light, coming to let us all know that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And our excitement is directly tied to the security and peace we have been given in Christ through his work on the cross. Without that, it's hard to hope for his return. So Jesus says, after these things, I will return. And us knowing these things, I'll leave us with this question. How then are you going to live? Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for Jesus and this conversation with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. I thank you for the clarity of it. I thank you also for the mystery of it. I thank you that you have given us all we need to live the life you want us to live. And yet, God, I pray that you would not find us lazy or sleepy, that you would give us an excitement and an energy and this ability by your spirit to remain alert at attention noticing that you would teach us how to live and live out. And we trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.